from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our Old Testament reading comes from Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Please turn with me in your pew Bible to page 818 of the Old Testament. Listen for and hear the word of God. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of your possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in showing clemency. He will again have compassion upon us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all your sins into the depths of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Caroline. Here are now these familiar words from the Gospel of Matthew. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I'd like to invite our uh, godly play participants to... Uh, Come forward, and, and we'll go out and dismiss you at this point. And then I'll invite the congregation to sing our hymn of praise.
may be seated. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So when my nephew was born a few years ago, my brother and his wife started the process of church shopping. Not to throw them under the church bus, but like a lot of young couples, they'd gotten in the habit of not going to church regularly, but having a new child is a way of focusing you ecclesiastically. They sensed a need to bring their son up in the faith, and so they started attending different congregations in and around Birmingham where they live. My sister-in-law grew up Episcopalian, and so they attended a few of those parishes, as well as a few Methodists, I think some non-denominationals, and of course, because my brother grew up in the same Presbyterian church I did, some Presbyterian congregations. So it was that my brother called me one day a little distressed, because he said that his wife, after visiting several different Presbyterian churches, told him that she wasn't going back to them anymore. You see, he said, she's something of a stickler. And she says the Presbyterians say the Lord's Prayer wrong. That was her word for it, wrong. And of course, with her growing up in the Anglican tradition, when she said this line of the prayer, she would say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us instead of the debts language that we use. And my brother wanted to know why we say it this way when the vast majority of other English-speaking Christians use the trespass-trespassing language. Now, I have to confess, I absolutely love it when someone asks me a question to which I know the answer. (laughs) It doesn't happen often, but I didn't have to look this up. Now, the reality is I had asked the same question myself, and so I shared with him briefly what I'm about to share with you this morning. Well, the short answer is that Presbyterians are saying the prayer as the way it was recorded in Matthew, right? It's in our Holy Scriptures. We can take pride that we are following the red-letter edition of the text. But of course, Jesus was not speaking English, nor was our Bible written in it. Now, to be quite honest, translation is always a tricky affair, trying to preserve the nuances of meaning from one language to the next. Clearly, what Jesus was talking about here were sins. And some churches do translate it that way. In fact, the congregation that I served out in Lawrenceville at Fairview, they've done that. But I have to tell you, when you just substitute in sins for debts or trespasses, it trips up every single visitor who steps into your congregation. If they're not watching the bulletin like a hawk, they miss it. Anyway, the divide in English started in 1522 with William Tyndall's translation of the Bible. He learned of Darius Erasmus, a priest from Rotterdam, who was a visiting professor at Cambridge. He was teaching ancient Greek. And he had broken with Catholic tradition by deciding to revisit the Greek source text of the Bible to see if he could improve on the Latin that St. Jerome had written the Vulgate in. So he had a new translation. And he also wrote numerous pamphlets promoting intellectual tolerance, especially about Martin Luther. 
Tyndale also knew that Martin Luther, <coughs> who was now in hiding, was translating a version of the Bible into his native tongue, German. And so inspired, Tyndall decided to translate the New Testament from Greek to English. Now, I wish we could go back and ask Tyndall why he chose to translate Matthew chapter 6, verse 12 as trespasses instead of debts. It's clearly debts in the Vulgate, debita and debitorbus. And even in the 14th century, uh, there's an old English Bible. It's considered the oldest English Bible around. It was called the Wycliffe. It used the word deet. But this is what Tyndall chose. And Tyndall's version had one distinct advantage over the earlier translation. He had access to printing presses. And so his version became quite popular among the literate English population. Now, the development of vernacular translations of the Bible was troubling for Catholic authorities. It was reasoned that if people could read their own Bible in a language that they understood, it would undermine their authority. And so they tried to stamp out the practice. You know, they never did catch Luther, but they did get Tyndall. He was visiting Antwerp in 1536, and so they executed him for heresy, for translating a Bible. Well, he may have died, but his translation lived on. In 1533, the English king, Henry VIII, broke also with the Catholic Church when they would not grant him a divorce from his wife, Catherine of Aragorn, when she had the audacity to not bear him a male child. The Archbishop of Canterbury, who was Thomas Cramner, then became the principal leader of a new church, the Church of England. And not long after Cramner took this role, he decided that a new, his new Anglican church needed a vernacular prayer book, and so he decided to translate the Latin Missal, that's the prayer book, into the English Book of Common Prayer. And when he copied down the Lord's Prayer, probably borrowing from Tyndall, because it was so popular, he used the trespass, trespasses language. And that prayer and that prayer book became the one memorized by millions of English speakers all around the future British Empire. But not quite all of them. You see, up in the north, up in Scotland, a reformation was taking place there, too. But this one was based on theology rather than palace politics. John Knox and other Scottish religious leaders broke with the Catholic Church, and eventually a group of them traveled to Switzerland and lived as expats in Geneva to study at the feet of John Calvin. And while there, they decided to translate their own version of an English-language Bible, and it became known as the Geneva Bible. Its translation of Matthew 6, verse 12 used the debts debtor language, and it's what all good Scots Presbyterians committed to memory. John Knox himself wrote a book of worship. It was first called the Genevan Book of Order. Sometimes it was titled the Order of Geneva. It depends on who was printing it. But what everyone called it was Knox's Liturgy. And I think it's fascinating that Knox's Liturgy, uh, when he wrote it down, didn't even bother to print out the Lord's Prayer. When the worship leader was following along through the, lecture, uh, the, the liturgy, and it was time to say the Lord's Prayer, he would get this prompt, Our Father, which art, A-R-T-E, in heaven, E-T-C, period. <laughs> the economy, where even etc. is abbreviated. It's the most Scottish thing ever. 
Now, Knox knew that his congregation would say the Lord's Prayer as it was presented in this Geneva Bible. Now, in subsequent years, when they printed different versions of Knox's liturgy and eventually renamed it the Book of Common Order, they did write out the Lord's Prayer and preserve the debts debtor language. But Joe, one of my professors, when I was studying in Glasgow, Scotland, pointed out that the differences of how agriculture took place in England and Scotland only further cemented the difference of language in the way we say this prayer. He suggested to us students that the next time we flew to London that we look out of the plane's windows. Well, thankfully, you don't have to fly to England to do this. You can now just open your laptop and open Google Earth. But if you look down at a satellite photo of the two nations, you will see very different types of rural areas. In England, in southern England, it's a patchwork quilt of tiny fields and crofts divided by hedgerows and fences. And so for an English commoner, he or she well understood that unless you have permission, you don't just go cutting across your neighbor's property. That's trespassing. But the Scots, they were herdspeople. And yes, there were some private forests and things where the lords would hunt. You weren't supposed to go there. But vast tracts of Scotland are grassy fields where they would just uh, follow their sheep and their cows, or as they called them, coos. And they ranged over uh, these lands, and they followed where the animals went because their property wasn't the land, but it was on the hoof. And so the concepts of debts and debtors to them was always stronger than the concept of a trespass. And thus it has been ever since. Scots Presbyterians and their descendants, just like us here at First Presbyterian in Atlanta, saying the prayer a bit differently from the rest of the English-speaking world, but hardly wrong. Well, now that takes care of why we say the prayer the way we do in English. But we need to remember that Greek to English wasn't the first translation. When Jesus was ministering in and around the Roman province of Judea, Koine Greek was the language of the marketplace and of written correspondence. But the Jewish commoners to whom Jesus ministered and taught and preached, they spoke a different language, Aramaic. It was a Semitic language that had come from the Levant. It was modern to their ears, but it really had more in common with biblical Hebrew than it does with biblical Greek. Words in Aramaic, just like in Hebrew, can have multiple meanings, and the listener or the reader must garner their meaning by context whereas Greek and later English has a greater abundance of different words and therefore the writer or the speaker can be more specific. Now personally, I like this exactitude of modern languages, but when Jesus read ancient Hebrew or when he preached in his native tongue of Aramaic, the ability of words to have more than one meaning lends a certain layering of theology that frankly can be lost on us. We miss something of the poetry when we try to nail down the exact meaning of particular words. The Aramaic word that Jesus would have used in this portion of his prayer was probably hob, which can mean debt or trespass or offense, sin. But Matthew's task was to convey this into the Greek, and he had to make a choice, and he had lots of choices before him. He, he could use harmartia, like he did in chapter 1, when the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and tells him that Jesus would save people from sin, or scandalizo, like he did when he's preaching to the crowd and tells them if their right eye causes them a sin, that they're to pluck it out and cast it away. 
um, or Ophelima, like he did here in verse 12, or Peripipto, as he uses just a few verses after this prayer, which means to fall off the path or to stumble, and that's probably the one that's best translated into English trespasses, as our NRSV Bible does uh, in verse 14. Anyway, any one of these Greek words narrows down what the sermons and the prayers are trying to convey. And when we do that, we've lost something. But what I really want to focus on this morning is the task before us in this sermon series that we've been on for the last several weeks. If you, are, if you remember, there are three questions that we are to ask. First, what does this verse about debts, or let's call them trespasses or sins, what does it tell us about God? Well, by teaching us this prayer, God's Son is revealing to us that God wants us to be in a right relationship with God's self. Jesus is teaching his disciples and us to pray this prayer as a form of confession, to repent, as John the Baptist put it, to turn back towards the proper way of worshiping and serving God. And it is for this reason that Reformed congregations, including Scots Presbyterians and their descendants, begin our worship services with a prayer of confession. We acknowledge that in order to come into the presence of God, in order to worship, we must acknowledge that God desires us to see the errors of our way and to approach God with contrition. Second, through each line of this prayer, we have sought to be transparent and to tell the truth about ourselves. And the sheer fact that we have so many different words in Greek and in English to describe our different ways of waywardness is illustrative to me of how many ways we can go astray and how far we can stray from God. I, as I was reading this, I was reminded of that old Jonathan Edwards uh, sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, where he makes the analogy that each of us is like a vile insect held by God over a, a lake of fire, and God's disgusted with us and just wants to drop us. And in fact, Ar Edwards argues that he should do that, drop us to oblivion. But... If it weren't for God's irresistible and redeeming grace, we might all sink into the depths of despair. But there's more to the story. We know the rest of the story. God sent God's Son, our Lord Jesus, to reconcile the world. And now the third facet of our observation of the Lord's Prayer. What does this prayer lead us to do? What are the actions of God's people? And this is where I think language is particularly important. For I suspect that if we focus on our trespasses and those who trespass against us, it can lead us into dangerous territory theologically, personal morality or piety, instead of taking stock of how we are actually complicit in systems and structures of which we are barely cognizant. I'll give you an illustration. The other day I found myself stuck in the usual horrible traffic on the downtown connector. Who hasn't been there? I was maintaining my lane, trying hard not to grind my teeth at the futility of the situation in front of me. Too many drivers for the road when someone in the lane next to me must have decided that my lane was going a little faster and so without using a turn signal, jolted over into my, right in front of me. I, I, I had to jump on the brakes, I honked, 
And clearly, this is a modern version of a trespass. Now, I wish I could confess to you that I did not think ill thoughts about that other driver. Perhaps I said a word or two that I'm not going to repeat in church, <laughs> words that a pastor shouldn't use even in his car alone. But no harm, no foul, so I let it go. Later that evening, when I was saying my prayers before bed, I asked for forgiveness for wishing grievous bodily harm on another Atlanta driver. <laughs> but as a good Presbyterian, I also confess that I'm not so innocent myself. I've cut other drivers off in traffic in the past. Such is life. The good news is God hears our prayers. God answers our prayers. God forgives us. Amen. That should be the end of it. Go to bed, conscious, clean. But what if instead of a trespass, we talk about a debt? What if I ask the question as to why am I stuck in such interminable tra traffic in the first place? I mean, why is the connector there? What was it before it was 12 to 14 lanes of asphalt? Do I really want to know the answer? That there used to be a neighborhood there, right where that highway is, where people lived and raised families, had hopes and dreams, African-American neighborhood, people who were just trying to get by but had zero political agency so that when the highway department came in claiming eminent domain, they had to get out of the way of progress. And why the need for so many lanes of traffic? Didn't Atlanta once have a quite serviceable trolley system? Our forebears ripped it up to help promote the purchase of automobiles. I guess the dream was a car or two in every garage along with a chicken in every pot, but who could have predicted that you'd create such a car-dependent city that you need to burn a gallon of gas just to go buy a pint of milk? It was something of a Faustian bargain, was it not? And don't get me wrong, I love my car. I got a new one during the pandemic. But I need to remember when I'm thinking about debts the extractive industries that mine the iron and aluminum to build it, that those companies aren't exactly stewarding God's creation, or the fact that this vehicle is powered by petroleum and that the byproducts of the internal combustion engine are all sorts of poisonous particulate pollution and carcinogens. Additionally, our national quest for cheap oil has led us into all sorts of geopolitical misadventures in places like the Middle East and has led our country to make political alliances with all sorts of nefarious dictators around the world. And even where the rubber hits the road, the tires, we had to become bedfellows with colonial powers in Africa and Southeast Asia that extracted horrific environmental and human cost to give us the rubber all so we could collectively enjoy the freedom of the road. And so when I frame it like that, when I think about debts, when I pray about my debts and the fact that God will forgive me, I need to remember that it's not a simple transaction. This is God being magnificent and loving and holy. And I'm wholly unable to pay any of it back. 
but I do have a choice to do what little I can. And what it does is it leads me to the people of God. It leads me to the church, to the church that seeks to right wrongs, to a church that points out injustice, to a church that points uh, out ways we can seek out reconciliation with those we've robbed, to a church that lobbies our elected leaders to do better in the future. Collectively, and emboldened with the power of God's spirit, we strive to make our world a better place, and this is our hope. You see, I want to align myself with Christians like that, to be a part of this holy work. And so when it comes to young couples asking which is the right church for them, I'll just give the same advice that I gave to my brother. Don't worry so much about the words they're saying, but look, look at the work they are doing. Amen.